Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Even there. I'll give you a little bit of a history lesson this morning real quickly. Um, you may or may not be aware, but what we are a part of called Cornwall Church started 111 years ago in a little Sunday school out on the Mount Baker Highway at Bell Creek and has over the years been faithfully uh, bringing the kingdom of God to Whatcom County. Fifteen years ago this week, we had our very first services in this building. We moved from the, uh, the buildings over there on Meridian Street, moved here 15 years ago this week. What is interesting is this week... We had our very first meetings in the new building of our Skagit congregation. On Wednesday, our pastors and elders went for an all-day meeting down in that building. And on Thursday night, they had their first official Skagit Cornwall uh, meeting when the Financial Peace University met there. And I thought it was pretty kind of cool that those happened 15 years ago uh, apart on the exact same week. And we're just excited, Skagit. We're excited for the new building. Looking forward to what is, it, I think, five weeks from today, your very first Sunday morning services there. And uh, we're excited to partner with you in that. And uh, I know that you guys are excited. We're praying that that building will be a tool that God uses, not only for you, but also to impact uh, Skagit. Those of you in Boca, good to have you with us. Watching online, streaming right now, it's good to have you with us. As we're in the second week of even there looking at this incredible, what I think is one of the most incredible psalms in all of Scripture, Psalm 139. One more little piece of history. Uh, 20-some years ago, in 1993, our church, Cornwall Church, was looking for a senior pastor. Our senior pastor had moved to Florida, and we were looking for a new pastor. And it came to this point where there was this consideration of what about Bob? I had been here for five and a half years as a youth pastor, and they said, well, what about having Bob as our senior pastor, and there was question and discussion on that, but it decided, let's go ahead and see if God would be, you know, maybe directing us as a church that way. As we got closer in the spring of 1993, we got closer to this vote, um, I was pretty nervous about the whole thing. I didn't want to have anything to do with it if it wasn't God's will. I'd had no experience. I was scared to death by the proposition, but God, I said, you know, if it's your deal. And so, call it a lack of faith, I'd put out a fleece, kind of before God, using the Gideon thing of God, if this happens, I will take that as your will, and then we'll go forward. I only told two people about the fleece, and it had to do with the vote, the congregational vote. See, our bylaws state that if 75% of the congregation votes affirmative, then that's enough to allow someone to be the pastor, uh, the new pastor. And I just decided, you know, with 75%, there was no electoral college, it was just popular vote. With 75%, that meant quarter of the church would say, he's not my pastor, and parade and protest and shut down I-5. And I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And so I had laid out this fleece that I wanted, if, if it were God, not, not because of, oh, look at me, I wanted a 95% vote as, a, as an affirmation that God was behind all this. 
the week came up for the vote, and I called my mom, and I said, hey, they're going to vote Sunday night, be praying. And she said, how are you feeling about it? I said, I'm nervous, but I put this fleece out. And, um, and she said, well, what's the fleece? And I said, a 95% approval vote. And she laughed at me. Now remember, my mom and dad had been in ministry for years. They had worked with a lot of pastors. And she said, Bob, do you understand that, that when guys go in to candidate for a church, they come in for one weekend, they pull out their very best sermon, they tell their funniest stories and their most heart-wrenching, gripping, closing, and then they give their, their speech about the vision for the future, and they look good for a weekend. They've got nothing but the best on a weekend, and they don't even get kind of that kind of a vote. Bob, your church knows you too well. This is my mom, my supportive mother. And, I, and, and, and the church did know me well. I'd been with them for five and a half years as youth pastor. I'd done some really stupid things as a youth pastor. I'd preached some really bad sermons. I, I'd used some illustrations I had to apologize for the next week. I mean, a lot of things like that. In addition to that, I had just gone through a divorce and had gone through a very dark season for myself, spiritually and emotionally. And on top of all that, this is what I looked like. I mean, business up front and all party in the back. Would you want that for your senior pastor? So that's what I had to contend with. That was, okay, that can go away now. And so with all that, we went into that Sunday night, and the vote was cast, and the vote came back at 95.6% approval. And there were two things that I knew. God's hand is in this. And the second thing I knew is the Cornwall family knows me, and the Cornwall family chose me. Even with all my warts, all my deficiencies, all my failures, and my hair. And you multiply that out millions of times over. And what we saw last week is that our all-knowing Heavenly Father knows us inside and out. He knows us and He chose us. And that's what I've asked you to live with this whole week. He knows me and He chose me. Everything about me. So we're looking at this Psalm 139. Powerful, powerful psalm. Last week after one of the services, a lady came up to me. She spent her entire adult career as a counselor. She's in kind of a semi-retirement season of life right now. And she said, Bob, as a counselor throughout the years, when some of my clients were dealing with depression, when they're dealing with anxiety, when they're dealing with fear, one of the assignments that I gave to my clients is go home and read Psalm 139 every single day. Because when the truth of this psalm grips our life, it brings about incredible confidence and assurance and peace. And I know that some of you, some of you have been telling me this, have already started undertaking to memorize the entire psalm, all 24 verses. Some of you are memorizing portions of it, to have it in, in your heart, to have this psalm. So last week we looked at the first six verses of this psalm, and in looking at those first six, it would almost seem like the psalmist is, is very self-focused. I mean, I don't know if you remember that that uh, Toby Keith song, I want to talk about me, I want to talk about I, I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. You know, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally, I want to talk about me. And that's kind of how it feels when you go into this psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know, when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You see, it just seems so self-focused. 
And while the first six verses are just replete with personal pronouns, it is not about him at all. What this does is it illustrates how absolutely intimately personal not only the psalm is, but our Heavenly Father is. And what he realizes is this is a whole lot more about God than it is about me. Tozer said this, what comes to our minds, into our minds, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God is what is so important. So when he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain, he's not talking about himself. He's not saying, boy, I, I just amaze myself. He says, no, no, it's God. That's what's amazing. What I think about God, this all-knowing God, that, that's, that's the focal point. You know, in Job it says this, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? That's what he's struck by. Not himself, but who God is. And he knows who he is. That's what's amazing. And as we saw last week, he says it's this, this all-knowing God, the, the omniscience of God. That he not only knows everything, he's the source of all truth. He's the source of, source of all wisdom. He's the for, source of all knowledge. He knows all things about the universe, all things about molecular biology, about astrophysics. He knows it all, and he knows it all about me. As mundane as when I sit down, he's aware of that. As hidden and mysterious as my motives, my thoughts, my doubts, the secrets that I have deep in my heart, he's aware of all of those things. That's what amazes him. He just sees this great theology of the all-knowing God. And today he kind of turns a, a corner when we look at the next section. Is that he points out another facet of God, another aspect of God's character, of his nature, another attribute of God. And today we see that, that he points out how God is this omnipresent God. Now when we think of the word omnipresent, we just kind of think he's, he's everywhere. And that's true. But I think to fully grasp omnipresence and to understand it in its full-orbed understanding is that there's more to it. To think that God and to know that God is omnipresent is to understand that he's transcendent in time. He's ubiquitous in space, and he's infinite in capacity. Now, while you're writing down all those big words, let me explain what I'm talking about. He's transcendent in time. We are linear. We're stuck in the now. We can't go back and relive the past. We can't go forward and pre-live the future. What we can do is we can remember the past and we can dream about the future in our minds. In our hearts, we can regret the past and we can be afraid of the future in our hearts. But we can't go back and relive that or can't pre-live that. We're stuck in the now. Even if, even if wormholes in time travel were possible, you could still only be at one time at a time. God, not so. God transcends that. This is mind-boggling because, because we're so linear. That God is right now not just aware of the past, but in the past. Not just aware of the future, but in the future. Not just aware of our present, but in the future. He is aware and he is there past, present, and future. This is mind-boggling. And he's ubiquitous in space. Everywhere he is. He's here at the same time he's in Nepal, at the same time he's on the backside of Mars, at the same time he's at the Andromeda galaxy. It, he's everywhere, all the time. Little side note, this is not to be confused with a faulty teaching called pantheism that God is all of creation. This idea that God is the trees, and God is the breeze, and God is my sneeze, and it all sounds wonderful. That God is all this. No, no, God is above all this. He's distinctly above. He is the creator. He is not creation. 
but he is everywhere at all times. And we can't be that. And that's what he is. And he is infinite in his capacity. You would think with a God spread that, that thin, that he would just kind of put little, little dustings of himself in places where he's not necessary. No, he is fully present and fully able every single place he is, every single time. It's an amazing thing. When David starts a psalm and he starts off with that tetragrammaton, that name of God, that the Yahweh, the, the yod heh vav heh it means I am that I am, not I am that I was or I am that I will be. I am that I am. It just God is. God is past, present, and future. He just is. God is here, there, and everywhere. He is. God in his full capacity, he is. This, this omnipresent God is an, is an amazing attribute, attribute of who he is. And so today, we're going to look at the next section of Scripture. If you have your Bible, your tablet, or your phone... I'd encourage you to turn Psalm 139. We're going to look at 7 through 12, verses 7 through 12. And in here we see this great theology, but he doesn't just take it from a theoretical standpoint. Again, he brings it down to a personal level so that we can identify how this applies to us. Now, while you're turning there, and we are going to go through it phrase by phrase, just like we did last week, let me just kind of give it to all of, to us in just kind of its context. When he says in this, about this omnipresent God, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. He's just talking about this omnipresent God. And he starts off with these two somewhat rhetorical questions. And he asks, where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? He's not looking for an answer. He already knows the answer. He's saying it's impossible. Where can I go from your spirit? What he's saying, in essence, when you're dealing with an omnipresent God, hide and seek is not any fun. Because he already is there. So I've got the perfect hiding spot, and you run, and you go, and you get there, and you go around the corner, and you hide, and, and God's there and says, what took you so long? I've been waiting. He says, you can't go anywhere that he isn't. He's already there, and, and where can I flee from your presence? And I wonder, I wonder if this is very deliberate, thinking about his own life. David knew what it was like to flee. He understood what it was to run away. He understood what it was to hide. You may remember early in his life when he was having some, some military victories, when he was gaining in power and popularity, the young maidens of Jerusalem would sing their song, Saul, who was the king, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul being so insecure, and Saul being jealous, Saul decides he needs to eliminate this threat to his kingdom, this threat to his ego, and decides to kill David. And David's best friend, Jonathan, who also happens to be the son of Saul, finds this out and runs to him and says, David, you have to leave. My dad's going to kill you. And David flees for his life. And depending on how you read it, for the next four to eight years, he is running from Saul. He is fleeing, sometimes by himself, sometimes with other people. But he's on the run. He's always hiding. He goes to the rocky crags of the goats. And then he goes over to the cave of Adullam. And then he goes over to the stronghold of the Engedi, and he's always running for four to eight years. He's running. He's fleeing. And during those years, David writes some amazing psalms. Some of the psalms that we read, 
when he's writing, you know, how my foes, how they, 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 they seek to, uh, to entrap me, how they seek to, to uh, capture me, how they're pursuing me. He's not talking about the Philistines. He's talking about Saul, the king of Israel, He's pursuing him. Sometimes with large armies looking everywhere for him, he understands what it means to flee. He understands what it means to run and to hide. And then later in life, it gets even worse. Later in life, towards the, the end of his life, one of his sons, Absalom, decides to overthrow the kingdom, to bring about a coup, a hostile overtaking. And he seeks to, to eliminate his father. And David, as an old man, flees from his own son. And if you ever read Psalm 3, Psalm 3, David wrote Psalm 3 when he was fleeing from his own son. He understood what it meant to flee. He understood what it meant to run. He understood what it meant to hide. And he knew how to do it. He'd outrun Saul, uh, Saul many times. He'd evaded his son. But what he comes down to is when it comes to God, he gets to this conclusion. He says, you cannot outrun or evade God. You can't. Where could I go? I couldn't run fast enough. I couldn't hide good enough. He says, it's like, like trying to hide from your shadow, trying to outrun your shadow on a sunny day. I don't care how quick or how agile you are. You can't get away from your shadow on a sunny day. He says, and it's the same with our God. You can't outrun him. Jonah tried. It didn't work. You can't evade him. Adam and Eve tried. It didn't work. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, we may ignore, but we cannot evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. You can try. You can ignore him, but you can't outrun him. You can't evade him. 1893, and I, I wasn't there, so I don't know this firsthand. 1893, a man named Francis Thompson wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And it's a long poem, and it's a difficult poem to read because it's in Old English, and so the meter doesn't really work quite right, and some of the rhymes don't happen as much. It's, it's difficult to read as a poem, but the message of it is incredible. As he talks about God as the hound of heaven. And he talks about how his fear sent him to run from God, to evade God, and God's love pursued him. And it talks about how God, with his, 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 his pace and his unrelenting chase, continued to come after him, to seek him out. And he could hear behind him the footsteps of this God and the voice above the steps pursuing him. And at the end, when he talks about God's hand, the shadow of his hand, the out, shadow of his outstretched hand, to caress him. And then at the end, he gets to this point where he realizes who he is and realizes what God's all about. And he talks of himself. He says, ah, fondest, weakest, blindest, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. God, in my running, in my rebellion, in my frailty, in my failings, you continue to pursue me. You continue to come after me, loving me, pursuing me, wooing me back with your hand, not to destroy me, but to bring me back in. Why is it that we run from God? Some of us have run from God. Some of you are running right now. Why is it that we run from God? Because we're afraid? We're afraid of God? We're afraid... We're afraid of what we'll miss out on. If I, if I submit to God, then I won't get this. And we're afraid that God isn't really as good as the word says he is. And we don't trust him. So we run from him. I love that in Psalm 23. Talking about this good shepherd. And what is it that's following? Surely, 
goodness and mercy as I run. Goodness and mercy is chasing me. Say, no, 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 you're going the wrong way. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. God continues to pursue us, continues to woo us, continues longingly, lovingly to be this hound of heaven that says, oh, no, 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 you're never going to outrun me. Just come back into my embrace. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Jeremiah says this, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. This omnipresent God. And from here, the psalmist takes us to the next step. He starts building this case of, of the reality of why he cannot escape God. He says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. And, and sure, that's talking about the expanse of the universe. But I wonder, I, I believe that this phrase right here has a whole lifetime of experience behind it. You think of the young David, youngest of the, of this, of the boys. And his job is to watch the flocks, the lowliest of the jobs. And keeping an eye on the sheep at night. Because they've been fed and they've had their fill of water. And now with security they are bedded down and it's quiet. And, and the evening uh, night grows, grows darker and darker and the stars come out. And while he's there in the silence of that night, just keeping a watch over the flocks. And the silence only broken by silent and quiet bleeding of the, of the sheep. He looks up into the stars and he contemplates the cosmos that Job talked about. The constellations that have been around for eons. And he looks at them night after night and he's amazed by it. And years later, when he's on the run from Saul, when he's fleeing for his life, when he's there in Engedi and been there many times, there by the Dead Sea, over a thousand feet below sea level, as he's hiding during the day because Saul and all of his men are searching everywhere, and he has to stay in the cave, but at night he can come out. And while the armies are waiting for the, next, the light of the next day, he comes out at night, and there he looks, and there it's so quiet and so still. And as he looks across the valley and the inky blackness of the Dead Sea is so dense with minerals and salt that even the biggest winds barely make ripples on it. And the quietness broken only by the song of some nocturnal and little insects with their legs rubbing together making that noise. And he looks up at the stars. And maybe he remembers the words that he penned years earlier. Ah. Oh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. And how many times as a father, a young father, with his kids, he would take them outside. He would want them to experience what he'd experienced. He would want them to know what he knows. And he'd take the kids out after bedtime. Let's go, kids. And they would look up in the stars. And he would point out the different things. And he would remind them of that psalm that he had written. Maybe they would sing it together. Because years later, his son, Solomon, would write these words. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. Where did Solomon learn that? I believe his dad taught him that from an early age. And so David writes... If I went to the heavens, and I know the heavens can't even continue, if I went up to the heavens, you were there. And then he contrasted. If I make my bed in the depths, 
you are there. And we could look at this a couple different ways. I mean, he's been on the run. He's, he's lived in caves. I mean, you took about a, a cave in the depth, in the bowels of the earth. He's made his bed there. He slept in caves a lot of nights. But I think it's deeper than that. Some of your translations might say Sheol. Some of them might say the grave. Some of them might say the pit. Sheol was this mysterious nether region. It was the realm of the dead. There was a lot of mystery surrounding it. So where do you go when you die? But what the Hebrew mind knew was that there was a one-way street to Sheol, to this place of silence, but God could dwell there. That even if I go to Sheol, even if I make my bed, even after I die, God, I can't even get away from you there. That you are there. When God would send his warning through the prophets, try to get them to, to listen to his word and get back on track. And said, if you don't, there's going to be some consequences. Again, because I want you back in the right relationship. Through the prophet Amos, as they would not listen to his word, he says this to them, though they dig down to the depths of the grave, Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. God is everywhere. So we begin to understand this about God. Begin to understand that there's nowhere you can go. This can bring about conviction or comfort. It just depends. Sometimes we say, well, I don't, I don't want God knowing everything. I don't want him seeing everything. I don't want, you know, this. I don't, it's like George Orwell's 1984. Like, Big Brother is watching you. I, I don't want that. There's like this, this agitation that, like, this annoys me. But it can also bring incredible comfort. And I wonder if when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, especially Romans 8, I wonder, was he thinking about the truth of Psalm 139? Because he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present or the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What comfort he brings from this. That there's not a thing in this world that can separate us from God's presence. Not a thing in this world that can separate us from God's love. Everywhere we go, in life and in death, high and low, God, your love, your presence, you're there. You're there with me. And he continues on. He says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, and the easy way to look at that is, is the east and the west. Sun rises, the dawn, on the east, and for them, the far side of the sea, the Mediterranean, would be on the west. You say, well, that's an east-west thing. He's already done high and low, now he does east and west, and it kind of completes the compass rows. That's wonderful. And that's true. But again, I wonder if there's more to it than that. I wonder if there's, there's a deeper understanding as he's thinking about these words. The whole wings deal. It was always this idea of, of this flight, of fleeing, of speed, of going away, catching wings of the dawn. And, and, and as the sun rises in the morning, maybe saying, Lord, if I even got up in the wee hours of the morning and started running from you, the wings of the dawn, when the eastern sky is just turning pale, and then the sun just comes up over the Judean hillside, and I start running at that point, I can't outrun you. Because the wings of the dawn, the sun comes and it will catch up to me and it will overtake me. 
I mean, he talks about this in Psalm 19 when he says about the sun. He's like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. He's saying, God, that's you. That's your presence. I, no matter how early I start, you're going to catch up to me, and I can't hide from you. It just is so fast and the mystery of it all. And though he didn't know, the orbital speed of the earth is 67,000 miles an hour. And he says, I can't run that fast. The sun always catches up and passes me and does laps day after day after day. And I settle on the far side of the sea. And their understanding, Spain was about as far west as they knew. Remember Jonah ran to Tarshish or, or fled to Tarshish. That, that, was, that was in Spain. The Mediterranean Sea out to Spain. Beyond that was the big sea. And who knew out there? I mean, you've heard about the old maps where they have out into the, to the west. You know, here be dragons. You know, because they don't know what's out there. Or pictures of the, of the map just dropping off of the flat earth. It says, even if I went out there, going to where we don't even know what's out there, going to where no one's ever even been, even if I were to go that direction. Here's a speculation. No biblical proof of this at all. We clear? Speculation. David was born in Bethlehem, raised in Bethlehem, traveled around, reigned in Jerusalem. But he was the king. And a king could pretty much do whatever he wanted. Speculation here. What if King David said, I'd like to go on a Mediterranean cruise. He's the king after all. The Mediterranean is right there. Heads down to Joppa, commissions a, a ship, and they say we leave at first light tomorrow morning. And what if, speculation, what if that morning David gets on that boat, and as the wings of the dawn come up, they set off out of the harbor, and then they put up the sails. And throughout the day, they go across the Mediterranean, and sure enough, the sun catches them. And the wind is full in the, in the sails, and they're going. And, and David sees where the sun is going to the western horizon. And David's just contemplating this trip from the wings of the dawn to the far side of the sea. And he gets out there in the bow, bow and the mist of the water coming up over the bow and the wind. And he just gets out there and he says, near, far, wherever you are. I can't get away from you, God. Okay, not biblical at all. From the rising of the dawn to the far side of the sea. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Go to the heavens, make my bed in the depths, wings of the dawn, far side of the sea. Here's an interesting thing. Maybe this whole concept wasn't new to him. Maybe it was something that he had heard before, but it's different. Because there's like a, like a mirror image, like a... a, like a, a same but totally different, like a, a negative of a photograph passage in the book of Job. When Job says, if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Complete opposite experiences. Remember a few years ago, the whole um, Where's Waldo thing? Where they took that little picture of Pastor Kip and put a cap on him and striped. I mean, really, next time you see Waldo, think, yeah, it kind of looks like Pastor Kip with a little bit of hair or something. It's totally Pastor Kip. 
Job's got this where's Waldo thing in life. So he's like, I, I can't find him. I don't know where I go. And what's amazing is he does the same thing, you know, north, south, east, west. The response is so different. For, for Job, he says, everywhere I go, God is nowhere. God is nowhere. Now, here's what's interesting. Y'all looking for a blank. Don't fill this in. There is no blank. God is nowhere. Same letters, David says, God is now here. Everywhere I go. Past, present, future, he's now here. Anywhere, you know, heavens, depths, wings, you know, setting sun, he's now here. In his entirety. He's not here. You know what's, what's interesting? When, when David talks about this, the heavens, there, there was a lot of mystery. I mean, he had never been there. He could only observe from afar. In Sheol, there was all this mystery surrounding this, the unknown, and sometimes fear acquainted with that. And, and with the sun, there was this, like, how does this whole thing happen? And, and, and the, the far west, I mean, where they had never, no one had ever gone, there was a lot of uncertainty about all of this. A lot of unknown, a lot of fear about the unknown. And he says, if I rise on the, on the wings of the dawn or set on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Now we come back to what we saw last week, that anthropomorphic term, the hand of God. Remember we talked about that last week. The hand of God represented the power of God. When a hand was laid upon you, that represented that, that you were hand-selected, that you were sanctified, you were, you were consecrated for God's divine purpose. When the hands were laid on, that was the blessing. That's what we talked about. That's why he says, I just can't even imagine this hand of God hand-selecting me and blessing me. And now he comes back to it again. That when I face the unknown, when there's uncertainty, when there's fear, he says, your hand guides me. You say, take my hand and, and, and I know where you're going. I, I'm already there. I know the way. I know what you're going to face. Let me lead you. Let me direct you. And, and then he contrasts it. And he says, your right hand, no offense to southpaws. How many of you are left-handed here today? How many of you are left-handed? Yeah. You know what? Statistics would say about 10% of, of, of our population is left-handed. And we'll look at this next week. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not a curse. You're not going to hell. Uh, okay. It's not. The right hand for nine out of 10 of us, the right hand is our dominant hand. It's our strong hand. And so this is used symbolically, again, to talk about the power of God, the strength of God, the sovereignty of God. The right hand is talked about as the right hand of righteousness, the right hand of blessing, this right hand of salvation. You see this all throughout Scripture. There's something about the right hand of God. And he says, and even there, your right hand, your strong hand, your hand that brings salvation will hold me fast. Or what about looking at it this way? Every morning, with the rising of the sun and a new day before me, God says, take my hand. Let me guide you through this day. And every night as the sun sets, he says, I'll hold you through the night. Isn't that what we prayed as kids? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Or what about this? At the beginning of our life, and today we saw these beautiful little babies here being dedicated. At the beginning of my life, God says, I will guide you all through your life. My hand will guide you. I will direct you. I will lead you. And to the twilight days when the cold dew of death is on your brow, I will hold you fast even into eternity. I mean, you go back one psalm. Just go back one psalm. 
Psalm 138, verse 7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes, and with your right hand you save me. It says, God, your hand, your powerful hand, you've laid it upon me. You have hand-selected me. You have blessed me. You guide me. You hold me. I'm just surrounded with God's guidance and security with his safety. I'm just surrounded with it because of his hand. What's not to love about this, to to be surrounded with his guidance and his security, to have that in my life, the hand of God. I've got his presence, I've got his spirit, I've got his hand upon me. I wouldn't flee from that if I had to. There's no better place to be than in the presence of the spirit with his hand upon us. And so in Psalm 63, he says, my soul clings to you because your right hand upholds me. What an amazing picture again. This knowledge is too wonderful, too lofty to attain. And then things get a little bit somber. It talks about that dark season of life, the dark night of the soul, and David had many of them. Those times when you're filled with despair, when you feel like you've been abandoned by God, like he's, like he's not listening, like he's nowhere present, where there's this discouraging circumstances around you where you're met with disappointment, maybe because of other people, maybe because of circumstances of life, maybe because of your own sin. David knew about this. In the book of Psalms, the most common genre of Psalms, there's different kinds of Psalms, the most common genre is Psalms of lament. This pouring out this heart, despair, this crying out, God, where are you? How long will you wait? Do you not hear me? That, that's this. He understands the darkness. David knew the darkness of being pursued by Saul. He knew the darkness of being betrayed by his son. He knew the darkness of his own sin. He says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me. God, the circumstances where it seems like you're distant, the things that I've done that would surely send you away, and the light becomes night around me. You know what? Even the darkness will not be dark to you. And the night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you, God. Even in these dark times of life, you're there. You're right there. Even when I don't see you, you're there. Psalm 33, he says, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our strength. In him our hearts rejoice as we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest upon us even as we put our hope in you. God, it's dark. You're quiet. I don't know what's going on, but my hope is in you. Because even in the darkness, it's your light that brings salvation. It's your light that brings a new day. It's your light that brings hope. It's your light that brings healing. It's your light that changes everything. And I hold on to that because it's not dark from your perspective. It's an amazing piece of scripture. And I think this verse 7 through 12 that we've just looked at could really be summarized, encased in one word. With. With. No matter where we go, no matter what we do, God is with us. John Ortberg in his book, um, God is Closer Than You Think, says that the story of the Bible is not primarily about people's desire to be with God. The story of the Bible is primarily about God's desire to be with his people. Look at this in Isaiah 41, verse 10. So do not fear. Do not fear. 
for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You don't have to live with it. You can live with confidence because God is with you. What does he say? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What does Jesus say? I will not leave you as orphans. What does the psalmist say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the, uh, the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God, you're with me all the time. Here's something interesting. And I don't know if this was intentional. Sometimes I, I get these insights and I think I'll get to the heaven and the author will go, yeah, no, that's not what I was thinking at all. This may be one of them. In Matthew's book, he tells the story of Jesus' life. And in Matthew chapter 1, on the front end of his book, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, he quotes Isaiah about Jesus. And his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's on the front end of his book. Before he gets going into this life of Jesus, remember, God is with us. That's his name. At the end of his book, the very last verse of his book, he quotes Jesus when he says, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. From the start to the finish, from the beginning of your life and beyond, I am with you. I am with you. There's a, um, a little uh, a prayer or a blessing that's been attributed to St. Patrick. Some of you are not aware of this, but St. Patrick was more than corned beef and green beer. St. Patrick was actually a very godly man. And there's this thing called the breastplate of St. Patrick. Uh, it's also called um, the, the Lorica. And it was attributed to him as this prayer that he quoted every single day. And you can go online and see it. It's quite lengthy. I want to read for you, read for us, a portion of this breastplate of, of St. Patrick. This thing that he would read every day. As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me. The power of God uphold me. The wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me. The ear of God hear me. The word of God speak for me. May the hand of God protect me. The way of God lie before me. The shield of God defend me. The host of God save me. May Christ shield me today. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit. Christ when I stand. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in my mouth, in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in, in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Amen. God, you would just be with me all day, every day. Just as you've said. Now close with it. 350 years ago, there was a guy named uh, Nicholas Herman. And in 1666, he had a conversion experience. And he so fell in love with Jesus. He had no education. But he became a monk and he took the name Brother Lawrence. And what he discovered was the truth that we've been studying today. And so years later, there were some of his conversations and some of his letters that had been recorded, and they were turned into a little book. He didn't write the book. In fact, he didn't want this shared, but it turned into this little book called The Practice 
of the presence of God. So I got this book in uh, my freshman year of college. Dr. Ronald Joyner had us, he was doing a class for us. This was part of our textbook. This is the kind of class you want to take when this is your textbook. It's a good class. And I became aware of this monk named Brother Lawrence. And because he wasn't educated, his job in the monastery was to work in the kitchen. And a lot of the time, he was doing dishes for the monastery. And what he discovered was that if this is true, that there's no difference of God being with us when we're working or when we're at the altar taking the Holy Sacrament. And he, and he wrote this, or, or he said this, the time of busyness does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several, several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the Blessed Sacrament. And he just developed this practice that wherever he went, knowing God is just as with me right here and right now, as he is if I'm kneeling at the altar, taking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he just developed and cultivated this awareness of God's presence and to live in God's presence every day so that there was no separation between the secular and the sacred. All was sacred because God was with him. And that's the truth for us. You know, I, I find it interesting how often we say, Oh, God, as we embark on this journey, go with us. He is. Lord, be with us today. I am, he says. Now, I'm not saying stop praying that. He's just saying, I've already answered it before you've prayed it. Go before us, Lord. Meet us there. I'm already there. I'm waiting for you. What if? What if we began to be a little bit like Brother Lawrence and started cultivating this awareness of God's presence with us? That these aren't just great words. These just aren't a theological truth. This is the reality that we can choose to live in every single day. So my challenge for us this week, as well as some of you are continuing to memorize, continue to do that. But start cultivating this awareness and start practicing the presence of God. Just to be aware that he's with you. From the time you wake up in the morning, he's there with you. All throughout your day, everything you experience, he's with you. As you go to bed, he holds you in the palm of his hand. He's got you. His hand is upon you. He is our great God. Where can I go from your spirit? <laughs> Where can I flee from your presence? Go to the heavens, you're there. Make my bed in depths, you're there. Rise on the wings of the dawn. Settle on the far side of the sea. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Doesn't matter how dark it is or if it feels like night all the same to you, God. You are with me. Today we're going to have a song, and I'm just going to ask you to remain seated. Consider this. This song covers what we've looked at these last two weeks out of Psalm 139. Let these words speak to you, and remember that we have a God who is with us.